Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 257 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have regular contributor, environmental law attorney, Michael Harris. Michael is one of the preeminent animal rights lawyers in the country and is the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. We talk with Michael about African elephants, about the bison of Yellowstone, about animal rights law, in particular independence and autonomy, the largest mass extinction in Earth's history, perhaps, is going on at present. We talk about that, about how Trump is on his side and he can't believe it. We talk about the Secretary of Interior, Zinke, and his own personal flag. A great conversation with environmental law attorney Michael Harris today on the program. We have our associate producer, Uncle Cesare, a.k.a. Dr. Michael Pavis, reading two pieces by Bangladeshi writer Rabindranath Tagore. We have an EWSA by yours truly, titled Melody, and a poem titled This Day. And as is always the case, all of this will be imbued, infused with a wonderful energy via several great tunes. Thanks so much for being here. Let's get to it. Episode 257 of Troubadours and Tours. Again, 
Melody. I look at these worn, scratched, chestnut floorboards, cross-cut to better accentuate the grain of wood so exquisite, and I think of the passage of time. These floors I have stumbled atop for only sixteen and one-half years, My children have rolled, crawled, danced, and stomped across them. Friends and family have shared with me their love and humanity as these floorboards hold the weight of it all. It is Groundhog Day today and clouds with snow showers outside the windows, wood frame too, 
of this house spell out six more weeks of winter. And we should be so lucky to do that prescribed sort of time. Alive fully in our personalized and collective wigdom informed prime. For what hath our experiences living taught us by now, if not at least that this life has so much wonder, is so fleeting, that there is joy and sorrow beyond any cacophony of words. It is our responsibility and bitter sweet gift to live lives of love, courage, kindness, compassion, with integrity and hope, genuinely smiling from the depths of a fervent soul and wistful spirit, with a heart earnest, beating a rhythm well poised to carry the melody. Hello, Michael Harris from Friends of Animals. Is that you? 
It is. How are you, EW? <laughs> good. It's good to have you on the program. Yeah, thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have environmental law attorney Michael Harris, director of the Wildlife Law Program for, as I mentioned, Friends of Animals, a regular contributor on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And today we're going to be talking with Michael about African elephants and perhaps bison in Yellowstone as well. And who knows where it'll go. So how's everything, my friend? Well, things are really good. Um, we're having a, a fairly warm winter out here in Denver, so I can't complain. Been outside a lot more than I would normally in this time of the year. So that's all good and uh, lots of work. And, and that's good, too. Not really great for the animals that I have to work so much because that means people are out there trying to harm them. Um, but, um, uh, you know, it's something we we love to do, and I'm glad I get to do it. Yeah, I know you love your work, and uh, you've been doing a lot of great work, a lot of work on uh, the national, international uh, sort of playing field of environmental law. You're pretty much becoming one of the uh, preeminent uh, fighters in, in the legal system for the uh, rights of other animals on the planet. And I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud to have you as a friend and on the program. Well, thank you. I mean, I certainly hope that someday I could look back and feel that we made a difference in what we, you know, in how people view and treat animals in the future. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's one of those things. Uh, both of you and I uh, studied environmental law, you know, a long time ago when there was a lot of um, a lot of promise. Uh, it was still a, a new field. Um, and um, well, animal you know, rights aren't necessarily new. I mean, philosophers have been talking about whether animals should have rights for centuries. But the idea of, you know, leaving them alone and, and doing more to um, protect them, it's really a big movement right now. And there's a lot of momentum. And, and you just sort of feel like we are, you know, about ready to do some big things with giving animals more independence and autonomy. Um, and, uh, you know, I, maybe part of it is, is that there aren't so many of them left <laughs> and we're starting to realize, you know, Hey, you know, we're about ready to lose, um, uh, a lot of the species that we've, we've just come to, uh, take for granted that we share the planet with, and we can't really do that anymore. I mean, you see these stories all the time here about how we're going through one of the, probably the largest mass extinction on earth. Um, there are species that are on Earth today that won't be on Earth tomorrow, and there'll be more that we'll lose the next day and the next day and the next day. And so, um, and many of them, you know, we're not even aware even exist, but we're also, you know, possibly looking at the last wild African elephants, the last wild rhinoceroses, the last wild lions and, 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 and leopards um, within you know, the next, you know, 20 or 30 years. And if you want to see one, the only place you will see one is in some zoo. And so uh, it just feels like there's some momentum here, and I'm glad to be part of it. Yeah, it, it, is, it is definitely something that I hear more and more of than I, I ever remember when, as you put it, we first got into environmental law and animal rights law uh, so many years ago. And, I, you know, I, it seems 
we as a species often respond when things get bleak, you know, when, when the warning signs are hard to avoid, and that's maybe why, unfortunately. Uh, though still, many people uh, don't really think about other animals much or, or uh, care uh, about them, even when they do hear that uh, a species might be going extinct. I, I've, I've seen that firsthand in um, a course that I teach some young people uh, in college, uh, environmental law course, and and uh, we talk about animal rights law. A lot of times they roll their eyes. You're like, what? Mm. That's the first response. I always bring you up, too. I say, you know, I have this friend, Michael Harris. He, he, he wouldn't take too kindly to that reaction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one way to talk to folks like that, and maybe you do. Uh, if you do, that's great. But Sometimes instead of trying to elicit a positive response out of them, just a question of, hey, if you knew that these animals were going to be gone forever, would you want to stop that? You know? Right. And, you know, and even people I think who are pretty passive or, you know, even sort of hostile towards uh, the movement that is giving animal rights probably in most cases would say, well, I don't want them to be gone either. And so – um, and then the next question after that is, okay, well, then, you know, if they're going to be there, would you prefer them to be living a happy life or a, a terrible life, you know? And I would think most people would probably say, well, I would, don't want them to live a terrible life. And so, you know, I, so I think, you know, you could unpeel the onion a little bit, even with the most skeptical of the folks out there um, that way. And sometimes that's all you can really do. Um, and then, you know, just sort of leave them with, well, you know, we're just trying to keep them around. And since they're going to be around, we want them to be fairly happy. We don't want them to be miserable. What's the point of living in a miserable existence? Well, yeah. Now you're relying on, uh, people being sensitive and thoughtful and ethical and moral. And some people are, uh, and, and even those that are, sometimes they come to a point where they feel they need to decide between them they themselves, their own species, and and uh, any other animals, and and when that comes to that, you know, kind of duality, uh, they would of course oftentimes choose their own species. I think. Yeah, that may be. Uh, I, I think those of us that are advocating for animal rights, though, aren't trying to diminish the 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 lives of humans uh, in any way, and and maybe maybe some of the some of the. Uh, arguments that there is a trade-off there can be unraveled a little bit more, but I certainly don't spend my days thinking that I want to make life on Earth miserable for humans either. So, <laughs> well, maybe a few humans, but, um, which, you know, we've never uh, talked about the presidential politics because, um, frankly, it's, not, you know, it's not that it's just aggravating at best, but not really that important to a lot of the work that what we're doing because most of our work is focused in the courtrooms and um, and you know, on the public arena and trying to bring attention to the plight of animals. But I almost watched almost watched the uh, State of the Union address last night. Yeah, me too. Um, almost, almost. But I was going to watch it because I was hoping he that the the president would say something positive about elephants. Which is the biggest conundrum and just sort of like weirdest thing. He's that on your you side. He's on our side. I don't get it at all. And um, and for for you know, so your 
your listeners sort of can uh, follow along here. Um, one of the one of our projects over well since about 2013 or 2014 has been to try to um, stop the killing of African elephants for trophies. So, you know, these are the sport hunters that go over there and just want to shoot the biggest animal on earth so they could bring the tusks and hide back and put it on their wall. And um, it's impacting the species all throughout the African continent. But there are a couple countries where um, the government over there have really just mismanaged the elephants and they're letting them just be killed off in this fashion at a way high to rate. Uh, like uh, the countries that come to mind are Tanzania, uh, Zambia, and the biggest of all, the most probably the most corrupt is uh, Zimbabwe. In fact, for a while there, when Mugabe was the president slash king of Zimbabwe, he either wanted to uh, put up all of his wildlife for trophy hunting or he wanted to ship it all off to China just to bring in the cash um, to line his own pockets. And so one of the positive things that we had seen uh, from the U.S. government uh, was that in 2014 they took notice that some of these countries were we're not really trying to conserve the elephants at all, but we're just trying to slaughter them or sell them off. And they put a ban in place that prevented U.S. hunters from bringing these trophies back from some of these countries, but Zimbabwe being the most notable. And, um, and uh, we were really concerned when Trump came into office. You know, his sons are big trophy hunters. We've seen pictures of them on the Internet uh, with their own trophies. And uh, we were really concerned that one of the first things that would happen is that he would abolish this ban. He would lift it and he would let the importation resume. And, uh, and indeed, uh, in November of 2017, the agency that, that handles this, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, announced that they were lifting the ban. And we also found out that they had been issuing permits uh, dating back to basically the day of the inauguration in January. Um, over 17 permits had been issued, even though there was a ban in place. So we geared up and we um, did literally the Thanksgiving evening, the day before Thanksgiving, we filed a lawsuit challenging the, the decision to lift this ban. But then Trump comes along and he tweets that he thinks that, you know, this hunting of elephants is horrific, terrible. Um, he says that he doubts the money is being used for any good over there and that it, he would keep the ban in place. And, um, and he said that and a lot of people wanted to get excited about it. But we have not heard zero from Fish and Wildlife Service. They have not committed to lifting the uh, – putting the ban back in place. They haven't done any additional rulemaking, public comment, nothing. And, you know, it's been almost, well, it's been over two months now. And then just this past weekend, I think, uh, I think when Trump was still in Europe, he went on the, um, with a Piers Morgan uh, show over there to talk about climate change. And he, again, he, he started talking, you know, about elephants and, and how he thought that it was horrific and that he would keep the ban in place. So, um, yeah, that's but, odd. but we, but the, you know, the, it, it's sort of like, you know, the, the agency isn't really listening to him. Not only is the bans not in place and uh, that people can apply for a permit 
But also, um, Zinke is going even further than that. Uh, President Obama had put into place a commission on um, wildlife trafficking, trying to make sure that there was a U.S. Um, advisory council looking ways to protect these animals. Uh, he's dismantling that. Uh, Zinke is the Interior Secretary. Right. Secretary of Interior. Yep. And, yeah, and, and in, instead he's putting together new advisory councils that are comprised of hunters, uh, people that uh, are in the gun industry, ammunition industry, and he's kicking all of the conservationists off of the off of the committees. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I he, think I think he thinks he's president of the interior. I think. So. Oh yeah, he rides around on his horse and stuff, doesn't he? He gets on his high horse literally. And rides around. Uh, I think he did that for uh, the first day when he was taking his his oath. I think he rode yep. on, in on a horse. Yeah. He's... Well, get this. This is a. Uh, I have a friend who works in the Department of Interior Solicitor's Office, and uh, to, I mean, she's just beside herself with this guy. How ridiculous it is. He actually has his own flag. Yeah, I heard that. He, he flies it over where you know where he is because he has to have the flag over the building. So if he's in D.C., it's flying over the Department of the Interior. If he's in a field office, he has them raise the flag at the field office. I mean, uh, it, it's oh my god! How would you like to work for someone like that? You know? <laughs> yeah, he is, he is not self-important at all. No. <laughs> no, no, no. So he. He lifted the ban then uh, was he, through the Fish and Wildlife Service when um, he is he the the guy that was behind the lifting of the ban? Yeah, he's he's the the guy who's really behind all of this, and it's I would just love to know if him and Trump have even spoken uh, yeah. about this. You know whether they've have a plan in place or or maybe Zinke's plan is just to stay as far away from him as possible and say that he never even knew Trump felt that way or something. And and then, but you have the courts on your side. So you're right. So we've had some success here. So uh, when the ban was put in place, it probably comes to no surprise that the hunting community um, sued uh, to try to overturn it, arguing that it was baseless and um, hunting is actually providing money for conservation in Zimbabwe. Uh, and uh, we we joined in that case. We defended the government in that in that case. We became a, a co-defendant with the U.S. Department of the Interior, and we did. We we prevailed. Uh, in fact, just last month, the U.S. Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia uh, upheld the lower court's decision, uh, saying that the ban was substantively. Um, valid that it was put in place for good reason that the uh, in particular in Zimbabwe that the conservation plan and management is is uh, you know sort of just useless it's not being enforced uh, they don't even know how many elephants they even have over there uh, and and more more to the point that the money probably is is not going to conservation so yeah the courts are in our favor and now we fought now that this ban has been lifted we we have now friends of animals has now brought a lawsuit we're before the same judge and hopefully you know, the judge will say well wait a second just a few months ago you were telling me zimbabwe was terrible us department of interior what changed you know how can you justify this and really nothing's changed 
now Mugabe uh, is gone, <clears throat> but yeah, the former leader of Zimbabwe. Yeah, yeah, he was sort of ousted through a, a what was really a bloodless coup uh, in November and December. <clears throat> but we don't really know much about his uh, successor. What uh, whether there will be any changes, uh, and obviously, uh, we, since we don't really know, there's nothing's changed as, as of this moment. Well, the, um, the one thing that confuses me and maybe the listeners is that you're in front of the Department of Interior uh, as a co-defendant at one point, and then you now are at odds with them, with Zinke. When you were a co-defendant with them, was that under the Obama administration d- during that period of time, or was it also during Trump's reign? Well, it, it, it covered both. It started in 2015 under the Obama administration. Um we were really concerned that they would just stop defending the ban when when Trump was inaugurated, but they didn't. They they continued to um, defend the original ban while they were working behind the scenes to lift it through the Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. So it's was really pretty odd. I mean, I called the attorney on the case in February and I said. So are you guys going to defend this? Are you going to commit to this or are we on our own now? He said, no, no, we're going to defend it. We're, we, we're, we're going to stick with it. And I said, well, I've heard rumors that the Fish and Wildlife Service may lift the ban. He goes, they haven't told me anything. He says, they told me to defend it. So, you know, they were just, um, I, they were just, you know, sort of decided that they would continue the course in the courtroom while undermining the ban in the, you know, the halls of the administration. And, and the ban would work uh, in, in, uh, in a man. Well, you explained this before where, I mean, you, you can't from here control what's happening in Africa so easily, but you could control what anybody from the United States or can bring into the United States from Africa. And is that how yeah, that's it? right? You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. That's right. We don't have the ability, of course, to prevent Zimbabwe from allowing their elephants to be hunted or anything else. But um, the U.S. is probably, I think it's not probably, it is the most... Uh, largest uh, number of uh, trophy hunters going to Africa come from the United States by far. Um, And so by being able to prevent the import of those trophies, you have a significant uh, impact on the level of sport hunting that goes on over there. So they can kill it, but they can't bring their trophy back. That's the ban. Well, that's true, but I don't think anyone's going to be spending the amount of money that it costs to uh, participate in a trophy hunt unless they know they're going to be able to bring their trophy no, back. No, I hear you. I think I mean that's the that's a pretty good strategy. I would say I'm not I'm not criticizing it at all. I just wanted to be clear on that. Um, uh, so now you know you're you're uh, you're kind of waiting to see what happens at the federal government level. Uh, the courts. You're you're still working uh, it there, uh, and you know now questioning what Zinke is is trying to do with the Fish and Wildlife Service or has done with lifting the ban. Um, so you'll keep us up to date on that. And 
you know, elephants, you know, they are the symbol of the Republican Party. Maybe that's why Trump likes them. It could be as silly as that. Who knows? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now, uh, he wants well, to kill all the donkeys. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's get to the bison. I know you wanted to talk about some of the work you're doing with bison in Yellowstone. Yeah, you know what's really cool is right. You got elephants, which are like the largest land mammal, you know, on Earth today. Um, and but bison, uh, American buffalo, uh, were were and and still sort of are uh, the largest land mammal in North America. Um, and obviously, for a long time before uh, we settled the West, um, you know, Europeans moved from the East Coast to the West. Uh, they were the dominant species in North America. Literally, you know, tens and thousands of them roam the Great Plains. Uh, this is, you know, not news to anybody, I'm sure, who has ever watched a film about the Wild West, you know, but they ranged, you know, from the Dakotas uh, to Colorado and Montana and Wyoming. Uh, you know, they were the dominant species. And you know what's really cool about them <clears throat> is um, they – a couple things. The way they graze the land, um, they actually, because unlike cattle where they just graze the plant all the way down to the ground, you know, they just sort of graze off the tops. And they actually make the, uh, the, ha the, the, the prairie ecosystem's plant life more accessible to other animals by doing that, mm. uh, allowing, you know, for greater, you know, sort of diversity within their habitat. And they also, you know, they sort of wallow when they, when they, when they move, they're always on the move, you know, so they, they're eating and wallowing and eating and wallowing. And when they're wallowing like that, they weigh so much that they make a lot of imprints in the ground where water can collect during rain and allows even greater diversity because you're talking about a arid, very arid environment on the Great Plains. So without the bison, you know, most water wouldn't pool. It would just soak right in. Mm. And so, you know, they, they just serve such a fascinating purpose. These big, rather slow, you know, they look like maybe they're rather dumb animals, but they're such an important part of the ecosystem. But we literally wiped them all out. <clears throat> and so by the time we got done with slaughtering them um, uh, in, the, uh, in the 19th century, there were probably a, only about 1,000 of them left. Uh, there were about 24 of them left in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy to think that. And so they've many people say the American bison is this great American conservation success story because we now have um, uh, we don't have tens and thousands of uh, excuse me tens of millions of them like we used to, but we do have tens of thousands of them. We have you know probably fifty, sixty thousand of them, but a good majority of those are not wild or conservation herds. They're actually being commercialized you know ted's montana grill or something like that mm. and um all but all but probably a few thousand um sh show signs of interbreeding with with cattle um and so they're not really considered to be genetically pure mm -hmm. and you got to remember i mean even just a couple percent you know two or three percent uh cattle genes 
can make you, I mean, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're a lot closer than that humans are to chimpanzees. So they're, they're moving away from their genetic roots as true bison to being sort of a hybrid, uh, type of cattle. And so the ones in Yellowstone, which, um, were the offshoots of those remaining 24, as well as some that were brought, uh, to Yellowstone to help beef up that herd, make it larger and make it more sustainable. Um, they are, they are the only ones that, you know, are really considered to be pretty much genetically pure, same as, same sort of genetics as the American bison, American buffalo was, uh, 100 years ago. Only 24. So well, yeah, now there's about, uh, 3,000-ish of them okay. now. So they're really important to the survival of the species and sort of maintaining that genetic heritage. Um, the problem is, uh, is like a lot of wildlife, um, they carry, um, they carry a disease called brucellosis and brucellosis can be passed to cattle. And when cattle get brucellosis, they, different things happen, but a big one is miscarriages. Um, and the cattle industry is afraid of any disease really, um, but particularly ones that they can't control. And there's while there has been no recorded um, transfer of brucellosis from a wild bison to a domestic cattle, we have seen um, domesticated bison pass it to domesticated cattle. So if you had a ranch where you had cattle and bison, Mm-hmm. There have been instances of brucellosis being transferred, but this fear, and you know what, cattlemen, they're just renowned for their fear. They fear everything, right? <laughs> they fear people touching their land. They fear government fees. They fear, <laughs> they fear disease. I mean, they live on the edge of fear. They really do. And so they have. And what happens is, during the winter months, like this time of year. The high country in Yellowstone National Park is a very – it's winter and it's, and it's severe and the conditions um, become very severe and bison will migrate to lower elevations and lower elevations happen to be um, moving north in this case. So Yellowstone National Park is higher elevation than the valleys in Montana. And so bison migrate into Montana where they come closer proximity to cattle. And so starting in the 80s and 90s, um, the um, ranchers and the governments up in Montana begin to just um, call them. Just like literally just if you migrate, if you're a buffalo and you migrated out of the park into Montana, you just get shot. (laughs) And so – that became a real concern for the park service who was trying to maintain this herd. So they devised a plan where they do more testing for brucellosis. They do quarantines, but they also call the herd uh, and they kill anywhere from a uh, hundred to uh, more than a thousand bison every year to prevent them from migrating up into Montana. The, the government does that itself. The government does it. It's a it's um, a coalition between the Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, 
the Montana Department of Fish and Game and the um, U.S. Department of Agriculture. And so um, the problem is, is that it's taking a real, uh, a real um, uh, hit on the size of, of the herd. So um, particularly there's a one herd, a central herd, that is now down below 800 individuals. And that's getting really questionable if you're trying to maintain genetic viability of that herd. That's a, that number's dipping. Um, the, you really need a couple thousand uh, bison in each herd to sort of ensure you're going to have a successful transfer of genes, healthy genes, and so forth. So it's not too much inbreeding. Um, yeah, that's right. And also, you got you know, if you have a small population and there's something dramatic that happens, like a, a new disease sweeps through, or you know, changes in the environment, fire, or whatever, uh, you know, there's a high risk of just a complete extinction all of a sudden of that herd. Now, so we're working with the Buffalo Field Campaign on this, and we filed a lawsuit to try to get these animals more protection. Michael Harris, that's, again, important, wonderful work. And the way you describe the situations is very compelling, very thorough, and I appreciate it. I wish we can go further with our conversation for this uh, segment, but we're just about out of time. Uh, well, I, I appreciate it. I, maybe I talked too much this no, time. So. No, no, you didn't. It was wonderful. I just want to stop you before we get into something where I have more questions to ask. I don't like to leave the listeners with too many questions. Uh, Attorney Michael Harris, the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. Type in Friends of Animals into a Google search. You'll find the organization. If you want to uh, reach out to Michael and ask him some questions, share some observations, I'm sure he is amenable to that. He's a regular contributor to the program, Troubadours and Rock on Tours, and it's an honor and a pleasure to have him on. Any parting words before we say au revoir till next time, Michael? No, um, you know, EW, I, I hope we can get together in person sometime soon. Me too. Let's work on that. Let's do that. Well, take care, and, and I hope all of your listeners have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you very much, Michael. Take care of yourself as well. Yeah.
elephants know We don't know what the polar bears know We don't know what the aliens know What the elephants know Passage and a poem by Rabindranath Tagore from The Gardener. I often wonder where lie hidden the boundaries of recognition between man and the beast whose heart knows no spoken language. Through what primal paradise in a remote morning of creation ran the simple path by which their hearts visited each other? Those marks of their constant tread have not been effaced though their kinship has long been forgotten. Yet suddenly, in some wordless music, the dim memory wakes up, and the beast gazes into the man's face with a tender trust, and the man looks down its eyes with amused affection. It seems that the two friends meet masked, and vaguely know each other through the disguise. Recovery, translated from the Bengali by William Ridici. Every day in the early morning, this faithful dog sits quietly beside my chair, for as long as I do not acknowledge his presence by the touch of my hand. The moment he receives this small recognition, waves of happiness leap through his body, 
in the inarticulate animal world. Only this creature is pierced through good and bad and seen complete man, has seen him for whom life may be joyfully given, the object of a free outpouring of love whose consciousness points the way to the realm of infinite consciousness. When I see that dumb heart revealing its own humility through total self-surrender, I feel unequal to the worth his simple perception has found in the nature of man. The wistful anxiety in his mute gaze understands something he cannot explain. It directs me to the true meaning of man in the universe.
this day. A ball bounces three times inverted parabola from my hands to Chloe's. She laughs, smiles, and sings to me without words. I got it, Daddy. These are the most beautiful several moments I have experienced this day. episode 257 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, this week's guest, environmental law attorney extraordinaire, Michael Harris. I'd like to thank our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, Bangladeshi poet, Rabindranath Tagore, as well as these musical artists, the Talking Heads, Eric Sate, James Maddock, William Tyler, Janko Nilovic, as well as Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, enjoy this one. Take care. <laughs>